Open your Bible with me tonight to the book of Genesis, chapter 42. Genesis, chapter 42. And we're studying the life of Joseph really here at a very important place in Joseph's life. This is the time where, where Joseph is learning about the providence of God, that, that God cares for our lives, that God provides for our lives, that God's strong hand is there to protect our lives even when we can't see it. Even when we cannot see it, God is working. And I want to remind you that tonight, even when you can't see it, the Lord is working. That's why we titled the message this evening, Trust in the Wise Plan of God. In His providence is filled with wisdom. Trust in his wise plan for your life. This is when dreams that God gave to Joseph actually become true. If you remember when he was 17 years old, he had these dreams and he was excited. He, he was impulsive. He wasn't ready yet. God had to prepare him from, from the age of 17, having equipped him with a dream, having called him, having shown him of those things that were yet to come in his life. And then thereafter, knowing that he was mistreated by his brothers, he was sold twice in slavery, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he was thrown into the dungeon of prison, and they're forgotten for two years from the cupbearer of Pharaoh. Well, then Pharaoh has a dream, as we saw a few weeks ago, and no one can interpret his dreams. There, the cupbearer remembers about Joseph. And they call Joseph, Joseph shaves, he changes. He's going through all kinds of doubt and fear and discouragement, but he comes out of the prison. And think about what happens there. The Lord calls him out. He gives all glory to the Lord. He interprets the dream of Pharaoh, and then he's placed second in command. That is God's providence in the life of Joseph. That shows us how God holds all things in his hands. He holds things in his hands that you may not see right now. Circumstances that you may not understand. Timelines that, that, that you may be pressured from right now. Answers that you're waiting for. He holds all those things in his hands. And God will do whatever is necessary to fulfill his purpose and plan in your life. Know that today. It doesn't matter what circumstance he uses, whether it's a good one or whether it doesn't look good in our eyes, he's still fulfilling his plan. Oftentimes, he does those things to bring us to himself closer. So what do you learn here in Genesis 42? That God is not in a hurry. Would you remember that? God is not in a hurry. When God is taking you through that process, I think what's important that we ask him, Lord, what are you showing me? Lord, I'm going through trials. Lord, you have me waiting, but what are you wanting to show me? What are you saying to me? I think too often we say, Lord, I, I, I am joyful. I, I'm submitted. I, I trust God. I, as long as I enjoy what's taking place in my life. And that should not be the case. Crisis doesn't make 
a man. It only simply shows what that man is made out of. And here you see what Joseph is made out of, his character. Do you remember the life of Job also in the Old Testament where he was tried, where he was tested? And notice what he said in Job 13, 15. We've read this many times. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. How many of us can say that even tonight? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It doesn't matter what God does in my life. I still trust him. And here you see that Joseph was trusting God through adversity, but Joseph was also trusting God through prosperity. Two different seasons. There are some people that can handle adversity, but very few people can handle prosperity. They fail to trust God in the times of prosperity. They don't know what it's like to prosper or to be tried or to be tested. Again, we look at the life of Job when he was tested. What did he say also? When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. When God's finished with me, I'm going to come out like gold. (laughs) Though he slay me, I'm going to praise him. And there you see Joseph still praising God, still remaining blameless, still trusting in the Lord. He was promoted second in command now. And there he meets his brothers. Notice, he meets his brothers there in Egypt during a time of famine. You know what the theme beginning in verse or chapter 42 to 50 now is? There's a theme that runs through these chapters of forgiveness. And I want you to write that that word in your notebook, maybe today in your Bible, the theme of forgiveness that should be running through your life as well. Because it was running through the life of Joseph here. Notice, it's easy to love people who love you. But it's not too easy to love people that have mistreated you, that have done you unjustly. Here he's learning to love those who have done him wrong. Here he's learning to love those who have mistreated him, those who have sold him, those who have unjustly treated Joseph. And notice what he pursues, reconciliation. If someone's done you wrong as a Christian, man, woman of God, notice what you should do. You are called to reconciliation. You are called to restoration. But you know what those two things require, reconciliation and restoration? True repentance. You can't have reconciliation between relationships. You can't have reconciliation between you and God without first repenting without humble confession saying, I know, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I made a mistake. I admit I've sinned against God or against my brother, against my sister. And without true repentance, then you can have reconciliation. And that's what you see here through the theme of forgiveness, that repentance is necessary. Now notice why repentance is so necessary, because oftentimes it takes a person some time to get to that place to get to the place of repentance, to to get to the place of humble confession. And you know what we should do? We we should be very patient. Like Joseph was. What was he? He was patient. He he was loving. He dealt with his brothers in a very gentle and wise way. And, And notice what happens. 
this approach was successful. He, he was pursuing reconciliation. He wasn't stubborn. He didn't say, you know what? They hurt me. I, I'm never going to talk to them again. They did me wrong. They better watch out when I become second in command. I'm going to pay them back for everything they did to me. I'm going to retaliate against them. When they see that I have the power, I I I'm then going to flex my power over them. In fact, I want to ask you tonight, has someone done you wrong? And have you allowed the Holy Spirit to erase that offense in your heart and mind? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to cause you to forgive that person that has offended you? Are you secretly clinging on to that offense in your mind and heart with bitterness, holding a grudge, waiting for an opportunity to strike back at that person? Or are you saying, Lord, I forgive them. I, I want to be freed from bitterness. You know how Joseph answered the these questions? He answered them the right way. He gave the Lord room to work. Today, if there's a problem between you and someone, I want to tell you this. Give the Lord room to work. Today, if you're waiting for an answer, give the Lord room to work. If you're praying for your children now, you can't force anything on anyone. Give the Lord the room to work. Notice what happens. What does he do? He, he would be used by God to bring true repentance in his brother's lives. But I notice it had to come from them as well. God working and dealing in the heart. Otherwise, it's shallow. Otherwise, it comes with no transformation. And, and there are two things we see in chapter 42. The first one is we see a time of testing. And the second one we see is a time of tension. A time of testing and a time of tension. Notice verse 1, chapter 42 of Genesis. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, which is brother, for he said, let some calamity befall on him. Now we see there in only the first few verses, the time of testing begins. This is the time of hunger. This is the time of famine. This is the time when the world there was experiencing a famine beyond not only Egypt, but also Canaan and the surrounding territories. So what does Jacob do? He, he summons his children, his sons, to action. And he knows here, we're going through a time of hunger. We're going through a time of famine. And this is what happens here is that when Jacob saw, it says, that there was grain in Egypt that God had sent. We know these events through the previous chapters. God sent Joseph to preserve life. He thought that he was being mistreated, but God was using all of those events for a greater purpose. I think we always have to pause and ask ourselves, Lord, what's the greater purpose that you have in mind here? Well, what's the greater plan that you have in my life? I may not be able to see it right now, but Lord, show me to be faithful in the process. 
What happens? God sends Joseph to preserve life down to Egypt. The same typology in the Old Testament of Christ Jesus. The Father sends the Son into the world to preserve life for us. Joseph, a type of Christ Jesus. So that one day the nation of Israel can give the world Jesus Christ, who would be the bread of life. What an amazing story and narrative we have here as to the lineage of Jesus Christ, as to the birth and the development of the nation of Israel. And what happens here is that Jacob tells his sons a very important question. He says, why are you looking at one another? Why are you just standing around? Notice what he says. There is an obvious scene. We're just here all standing and hungry. And we don't know where we're going to eat. Have you ever been at a position where you had a standstill and you don't know what you're going to eat next? I know husbands, that probably has to be one of the most frustrating questions to ask your wife. Where do you want to go eat, right? And you name every single place. I once heard a good objective, just tell your wife, you're going to surprise her and she, whatever the first place she mentions says, yes, that's where we're going, <laughs> But notice, why are you looking at one another? You see, there's no law that says that just because you're spiritual doesn't mean you can't be sensible. You have to be sensible as well. Yes, you're spiritual, but be sensible. 300 miles away, Canaan to Egypt, and they might be saying in their minds, we don't want to take this trip. We don't want to go on this journey. It's inconvenient. It's dangerous. But moreover than that, when they think about the word Egypt, their conscience was stained by the sound of the word Egypt. It's interesting here because they felt terrible. You see, the conscience has a way of digging up the past, of arousing doubts, of arousing fears within us. For them, when they heard the word Egypt, they went back to the memory of the time where they sold their brother and eventually he ended up there in Egypt. This word must have been a word that awakened their conscience to their past sins. You notice that God desires to bring man into full reconciliation to himself? That is God's objective always. And notice what he will do. He will awaken your conscience to your own sin to bring you to himself. You know what he was doing there for those brothers? Their conscience was being awakened to the nature of them and their sin. It's almost like a, a person hearing an alarm that only one person has the power to turn it off because in their conscience, they know that they have sin. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, in this side, on earth, what can be worse than the tortures of an awakened conscience? in an unrepented state. You know what the worst place to be in is when you have a guilty conscience. How is it that we want to be tonight as we worship the Lord? We want to have a pure conscience before him. Has God awakened your conscience today to know that you need Jesus Christ? Awaken your conscience about the spiritual state that you're living in right now, maybe of your sin that you have still not confessed, still have not repented from. And what is God using this desperate situation of a famine, 
this desperate situation of hunger to get your attention concerning your sin. That's what God does. He'll put you in a desperate situation, in a situation where there's a need. And then he uses that need to awaken your conscience of your need for him. What happens there in verse two? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. There is grain available in Egypt. Go to the place, buy food so that we may live and not die. There's a famine, sons. We're hungry. We're empty. And you're just standing around looking at one another. You're not being fed. You're not being sustained. Why? Because you're standing there and you're not going to the right source that you may find bread for our lives. There are too many times people that are standing in their own spiritual famine, waiting to be fed by the wrong things, unwilling to repent, unwilling to face their sins, unwilling to go to the bread of life, the source that will provide life so that we may not die. They're refusing to go to Jesus. Just think about it. There's a famine. You know where to get bread. You just don't want to go there. You're stubborn. You don't want to repent. And in your conscience, you know that you have not made things right with your past sins. Now notice here, the only reason that there was grain in Egypt, it was to provide for their needs because of what the Lord was doing in his providence. God sending Joseph beforehand. In Psalms 105, 17, it would tell us this, that they hurt his feet with feeders he laid in irons. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Until the time that his word come to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The psalmist would know it. The Lord would send Joseph beforehand so that in the time of famine, they would be bred for life. Now, we all know that famine is not a good thing, but God used it. Famine is not a good thing, but God used it. Sickness is not a good thing, but God uses it. Trials for us, they may not seem like a good thing, but God will use them. God can and God does use even material needs, even physical needs, even lack to get us to where we normally would not go and to do the things that we normally would not do. You know what was motivating here? The brothers, their personal need. Their personal need moved them. God brings us to this place where we go to him because of our personal need. That's the providence of God. And sometimes we think this is a hardship. This is an inconvenience. But God uses those hardships and those inconveniences in ways that we would not have imagined only to draw us to himself. Verse 3, notice, it says, So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. So they go, they depart. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, the youngest, with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall on him there, Jacob is favoring Benjamin. Benjamin was Joseph's brother. He was born from Rachel. He was his favorite to Jacob. And he kept a very protective eye on him. He says, I don't want to send him lest he be harmed on this trip. 
So it happens that in verse 5, that the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So many went to buy food because the land, the famine was in the entire land of Canaan as well. But this was a time not only a famine, this was also a time when Joseph's brothers would experience several tests that were designed by God to bring to them repentance. That's what a test does. It draws you closer to Jesus. That's what a test does. It shows you your need to go to him. And what happens here in verse 6 is that, that Joseph meets them. And Joseph was the governor, notice here, over the land. This is God setting up these events. Now just think about it there. They, they mistreated him. They sold him twice. He was falsely accused. And now he's the governor. He's right at the place where God wants him to be. <laughs> There's no better place to be at than where God wants you to be. Because where he wants you to be, there he'll use you. And there he is as a governor. There we see in verse 6. Over all the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. He was the overseer. He was in charge of this. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. You see Joseph having a flashback here. He's thinking, I've seen this before somewhere. This was a dream that God had given him when he was 17 years old. They come as brothers, and they bow down before him, showing him great respect. Why? Because they knew that their lives depended upon Joseph's approval to sell them any grain. But here, God's fulfilled dreams are coming true. After God's matured Joseph, after God's prepared Joseph, this is God's sovereignty at work accomplishing his divine purpose. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He can use any circumstance, whether it's favorable or you may not see it to be favorable, he will use that circumstance to fulfill his plan. Why? Because you learn during those times, notice what you learn, you're not in charge, God's in charge. It is God who's in control and he can do whatever he wants. Psalms 1, 15, verse 3, the psalmist said it very well, but our God is in heaven. Notice, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. There's so much rest and comfort in that. The psalmist knew it. He says, our God is in heaven. He'll do whatever he wants. He'll use whatever he needs to use to accomplish his purpose in his plan. We are just a part of God's plan for such a time as this. We are just a part of God's greater purpose for such a time as this. And sometimes we live our lives so heavily focused on self. But notice here what Joseph is learning. His life doesn't belong to him because God is in control of all the events. And it tells us there, even in verse 7, and Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them. And he spoke roughly to them. Just think about Joseph, what he's thinking here. He recognized them instantly, but he acted like he didn't know them. He spoke to them harshly. He spoke to them roughly. Isn't that oftentimes when the Lord is trying to teach us 
a lesson. You almost read the Bible and you think, Lord, the word of God is dealing roughly with me today. That message spoke to me so strong. Notice God will even use that to test the motives of our hearts, to test whether or not we have really changed inside. Why? Because we don't like being spoken to roughly. But it, it really exposes, it reveals the intentions of our hearts. But this is one of the kindest ways of oftentimes how God deals with us. It's in a way that we would consider harshly. You notice what you notice here in this verse? That, that God has never abandoned Joseph, even in this time. And, and he asked them a question there in verse 7. And he said to them, where do you come from? And he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of this land. Notice what Joseph is thinking here. He, he recognized them. He, he spoke to them to an interpreter. We'll see there in the next verses. And notice he tells them, you're spies. You didn't really come to buy food here. He, he's testing his brother. This is the time of testing. He, he wanted to know the true attitude of their heart towards God and towards him. He, he wanted to know, have they repented for what they did to me? Is there any remorse for what they had done? I want to know, are, are these the same guys or have they changed? You almost think that Joseph here is trying to get even, but he's not. In the previous chapter, Genesis 41, verse 38, it says that there was no one whom the Spirit of God was on like Joseph. He was doing this guided by the Spirit. You know who tests us every day, who convicts us, who leads us, who guides us? We have the Spirit. <laughs> and the Spirit was leading Joseph here. In fact, it's awesome to see as you study the life of Joseph that you find a picture of Jesus there who long before we knew who he was, he recognized us and he still loves us. And the first time that the brothers met Joseph, he didn't reveal himself to them. And the first time that Jesus came and was introduced to the Jewish nation, they didn't recognize him to be the Messiah. But the second time Joseph came and he met with his brothers, notice, then he revealed himself as to who he was. How many of us know that this, at the second coming, the nation of Israel will know that Jesus is the Messiah? They will know the truth about Jesus. In verse 9, it says that Joseph remembered the dreams. And he remembered what the Lord had shown him in regards to his brothers bowing down to him. Now, think about what happened there when his brothers sold him to slavery. They thought that they were going to interfere with the dreams that Joseph had. They were trying to defeat these dreams, but notice God was using them to provide a way for the dreams to be fulfilled. There are going to be those that when God is trying to do something in your life, they'll try to defeat that vision, that purpose, that plan. And you may say, they're working against me. But God will even use the evil motives of people to fulfill 
the good plans of God for your life. Even the evil intentions that people have for our lives, notice, even when they mistreat you, even when they speak about you, even when they betray you, God will use those evil intentions and motives that people may have against you only to fulfill his good plans for your life. And that's what he's learning there. So there in verse 10, and they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all one man's sons. We don't come from another government or nation or country or land to spy this land out. We come from a family, and we're honest men. Just think about what Joseph thought when they said we're honest men. He could have said, oh, really? Don't you remember when I was 17? You weren't honest on that day. Your servants are not spies, verse 11. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of this land. He's saying, I'm going to test them. I want to make sure they repented. I'm not just going to take their word for it right away. I'm going to be discerning. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be patient because I want to find the true character of my brothers now. Yes, we can reconcile. Yes, we can restore. But is there repentance? You know, people think that you have every opportunity to reconcile by simply saying a few words. You know, reconciliation doesn't come from the words that come out of your mouth. Reconciliation comes from the repentance that first takes place inside your hearts. You can say, I'm sorry, but have you repented? That, that There's the question. And here, the Lord is using these tests to awaken their conscience to their own sin. So verse 13, and they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our fathers today, and one is no more. They're speaking of... Joseph. And Joseph, for all this time, after having been sold and sold again, betrayed in prison, you can imagine how many times he thought about his brothers. How's my family doing in Canaan? Do they ever think about me? Do they wonder what's come from me? And the emotion that this would provoke in Joseph to say, there's one and he's no more. There was a sentiment in Joseph that you're going to see here that that he could not handle. He had to walk away completely. I said, there's one more. He's no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as you spoke, saying, I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. He's testing them. In this manner, you shall be tested. There's a key word for us tonight. What is God doing in our lives? He tests us. He wants to know what's in our hearts. He wants to know who they are now, his brothers. And he says, you're going to be tested so that we know who you are truly. To to say and to find out whether you are who you say you are. You, You have to be tested. But the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Now, notice how he is trying to mask his identity. He's trying to really let them believe that he is not who he really is. Also, Joseph, as a way to test them, he says, we're going to find out 
whether or not your spies, verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be again, this word tested to see whether there's any truth in you or else for the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. If you really are who you say you are, then you're gonna pass this test. There's not a problem. There's not gonna be an issue. But by this, we will know whether or not you are spies. Time will tell. This test will tell. Go and come and bring your younger brother. And the rest of you are going to be kept in prison. And this is how we'll know whether or not you truly are who you say you are. Otherwise, you're spies. So verse 17, so he put them all together in prison three days. And notice what he does there. He lets them wait for three days in prison. You know what Joseph wants them to do? He wants them to think about what they've done. He wants them to be confined with their own conscience. He wants to give room for God to work in their lives. Okay, for three days, I'm going to leave them there and I'm going to see what the Lord does in their lives. And he comes back after three days and says, so then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. And I want you to look at those words in your Bible, maybe circle them or underline them for I fear God. He was a God-fearing man in every situation. He wasn't reckless. He was dealing with his brothers who did him harm in a God-fearing way. He wasn't taking advantage of them. He wasn't having ill motives or intention towards them. He's saying, I want you to know something. I'm a God-fearing man. They're looking at what they think is an Egyptian. And now they're told he's a God-fearing man. He wanted to comfort his brothers as well. So he says in verse 19, if you're an honest man like you say you are, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. Let the rest of you go out and carry grain, but one of you is going to stay back here in prison. And he says this in verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me. Why is it that he wants them to bring Benjamin? Well, first of all, he wants to meet his brother. His heart is longing to finally meet his brother. But you know also what he's thinking here? He remembers what the dream was. He remembers that the sheaves that were bowing down to his of grain were incomplete because there was one missing. And God had to fulfill his plan. He's saying, I'm going to stay according to what God has already revealed to me. I'm going to wait till the dream that God has given me is completed before I move on to the next thing. Patiently waiting for God's will to be accomplished. So there it says in verse 21, then they said to one another, we're truly guilty concerning our brother. Notice what's happening here. He says, bring me your younger brother so I know that your words would be verified. Then you shall not die. They agreed in verse 20, but they felt a conviction in their conscience in verse 21. We are truly guilty. This is the first step to reconciliation. Did you know that? This is the first step to restoration in our walk with Jesus Christ. When you say we are truly guilty. 
And then they know they're being dealt by God concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of soul. We saw how he pleaded with us. We saw how he asked us. They're speaking of Joseph. They're speaking of unconfessed sin. They're speaking of undealt with sin in their lives. And we would not hear, therefore, this distress has come upon us. They're learning that sooner or later, God would deal with unconfessed sin. We know that we cannot fool God. We, we cannot be foolish. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that man shall also reap. And God was working in their lives, even through that moment, to move them towards true repentance. He's causing them to deeply feel the destructiveness of their own sin. Notice what happens. And it says, and Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you? Now they're speaking with one another saying, do not sin against the boy. They realized there was sin. Notice, don't sin against him. And you wouldn't listen. Someone tried to stop you. Someone told you not to do it and you wouldn't listen. You still went ahead and mistreated that person. You know where there's nothing worse than having that stained guilty conscience? When you've harmed someone, even when you were warned not to do it? Reuben says, I told you not to do it. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They knew that they were being held accountable in their conscience before God because of what they did. You would say, well, I can cover that up. You, you, you think you're covered up before man, but you can't cover it up between you and God. Keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with other people. There you see in verse 23, so they did not know that Joseph understood them. Think about that. He was there standing. They didn't understand, know that he knew and he spoke their language for he spoke to them through an interpreter and he turned himself away from them. Notice after hearing, they're speaking about him. The emotions were so heavy that he had to turn away and notice he wept. You think about why is Joseph weeping here? He's weeping from a broken heart, knowing that God is working and dealing in the hearts of his brothers now. That they're starting to repent and confess of what they had done to him so many years prior. And then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He binds now Simeon. After he composed himself, and he's giving them still time. Joseph here, do you see he's not in a rush? He's not impulsive. He's just saying, what does the Lord want me to do here? Because God's dealing with my brothers. And I want reconciliation, but I want God to do it. I don't need to force it. I don't need to fabricate it. I don't need to push myself on them. Let me just give God some room to work here. Let me let the Lord work in the heart. He could have just automatically said, guys, it's Joseph. And they would have apologized right away because they knew he, he, it was, he was in, in charge. He had the power to sell them grain. They would have said sorry from the get-go. But he said, no, I'm going to let the Lord work in their hearts so it's true repentance, so it's true reconciliation. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain and restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provision. Circle the word Provision. What does the word provision remind you of? God's providence. 
God allowed these events to happen in Joseph's life in order that he would preserve life, not only in Egypt, but also in Canaan, and that out of Joseph's troubles there, the nation of Israel would multiply in Egypt. It's God's master plan orchestrating all of these events. He restores their sack of money. He puts it in their grain. He's enabling them to have more resource to come back and purchase again. But what does he do? He gives them back their money. He gave them what they needed for their journey. He took care of them from beginning to end. Notice what he's doing there. He's taking care of them. Joseph's behavior, his intention was to bring his brothers again to repentance, to reconciliation. And as he did this, notice he needed to remember this time. As they left, as they went back to Canaan, he was remembering, notice, if I give them this, they're going to come back. Do you see the goodness is how he was dealing with them? I think every, the next time we think the Lord is treating us harshly, remember his goodness. We may think you're going through a hard season. Remember, God is still good. He's still providing. He's still restoring. And it tells us there in verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened the sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, when they were encamped there, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. They stopped. One of them took out the money. They saw the sack there at the mouth, the money there at the mouth of the sack. So they said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Do you see how they were afraid? Do you see how they trembled? They, they were trembling. They, they were fearful. What has God done to us? They're realizing that God is dealing with them as well. This is the kind of feeling that people live with, that you and I would live with if we lived with a guilty conscience. You know what it looks like? A life living in fear. A life filled with trouble. No peace, no rest. And there's so many people, even maybe tonight here, that have no peace or rest because their guilty conscience is bothering them of unconfessed sin. But here you see it very plainly. When you have a pure conscience, you know what you say? You don't say, what has God done to us? You know what you start to begin to say when you have a pure conscience? What has God done for us? A pure conscience reminds you what the Lord has done for us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, to close tonight, the apostle says this, let us draw near with a true heart. Draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, in full confidence. You don't have to carry the guilt. You don't have to carry the shame. You don't have to carry the sin or the consequence or the guilty conscience. Come with full assurance of faith, trusting him, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Isn't that amazing? Our hearts can be sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How? By the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. We can be washed 
We can be purified. We can be cleansed because of what Christ has done for us. There the message lies in. God will do whatever he needs to do to draw you closer to himself. He will do whatever he needs to do to conform you more to the image of his son. Can we pray tonight?